1 through 7. Uh, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Well, this passage has gripped my heart uh, this week and last, and this is sort of a part two regarding having a Jesus-based community, a community where Christ is head and the gospel is the aroma in the room. No matter if somebody poor comes into the assembly or somebody rich, this passage is saying that we need to see beyond the veneer looking into the hearts of people. Not just being impressed by outward appearances, but looking to the heart. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that not only saved us, but it compels us to love people in an equal way, giving equity all around. And it gives us the opportunity to relate to people that you never would have related to outside of church. That's the beauty of this passage. Now, earlier this week, I was sitting here wrestling with the verses we're going to cover this morning, and I was just kind of thinking, okay, I just want it to grab my heart in a unique way. And so, right along that time, uh, Dave Parker, one of our elders, came into my office, and he's a former pastor and preacher, and so I said, Dave, you know, give me something, you know, from this passage. Hit me with this. And, And he told me something that I want him to tell you right now. So, Dave, come on up and share what you shared with me earlier. Thanks, Pastor. I was the pastor of Silver Way Baptist Church in the mid-80s in Bremerton, Washington. And as pastor of a church, you probably all understand that those precious moments with your family often are few and far between. My wife and I had somehow carved out some time on a Saturday to take our little boys, our two little boys, out and on an outing. And so I had to, of course, stop by the church on the way to drop something off or pick something up. And as we pulled up and I walked towards the front door, I became aware of a, of a man standing there approaching the church, dressed shabbily. You could tell by the odor around him that he was struggling with alcoholism. Uh, he was kind of stinky in addition to that. Uh, downtrodden, and he just, he just was at a loss. As he approached me, he said, I, I really need to talk to someone. Are you a pastor? Oh, boy. <laughs> Mrs. Parker's in the car with the kids. We're ready to go. I said, yes, I, I am a pastor. I'm a pastor here. How can I help you? And he 
asked if he could go inside. And so we went inside, sat down in my office, and he began to tell me how at about 55, 60 years old, how alcohol had completely and utterly ruined his life. Then he went on to say, I was on the way home to kill myself, and I had to pass by this church on the way. And as we were talking, he repented of his sins, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ while Mrs. Parker was waiting in the car. And after he was finished, he produced from his pocket a 30-30 cartridge. And he said, this is the last one I had. I was going home to put this through my head. And finding someone at this church to help me was the last opportunity I had to turn from that course of action. Interestingly, the next day, he was at church. We had a prayer meeting every morning at the church, every morning, We had elders who would come in and pray, and I would come in and pray. He came to that prayer meeting every morning. He was faithful, began growing in the Lord. I gave him a Bible, the Bible that I had used through seminaries. I had changed uh, translations, but I gave him the one with all the notes in it that I had handwritten, you know. And a few months later, he had to move out of state, and we lost track of him. But then a few years later... I got forwarded to me from Sylvan Way Baptist Church a letter that he had sent. The letter said, I just wanted you to know that I have remained faithful to the Lord, that I continue to use your Bible. He was employed and deeply involved in a church in another state. So here was a shabby man all of a sudden that the Lord put us on a collision course with on a day when we really didn't have time to do that. But God used that circumstance to bring salvation into his life. It's just amazing how this kind of is fleshed out. This, we can't judge people by their appearance because there are a lot of children God has running around out there who are not saved yet. And he's going to use us to reach out to them. Thanks, Pastor. Well, thank you. You can see why I had him share that story. You know, it's it's really our privilege to minister to people that we wouldn't otherwise think that we're supposed to minister to. In many ways, the gospel flips things on its head, doesn't it? Gospel calls us to do things that we would not normally do, things that take us out of our comfort zone. And I'm just thankful for that story to sort of launch us into the text. Let's look at the verse 4 of chapter 2 as our first verse for study. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's sort of the punchline from last week. What we don't want to be is a judge. We don't want to sit on the throne because we know Jesus is on the throne. He is the ultimate judge. He's the one that sees into the hearts of the people. And what I want this morning's message to be is where we see people through God's eyes. Let's put on the Bible's glasses 
and look into people's hearts and see their deepest needs. Look at verse 5. James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Let's stop right there. First of all, we need to see people through their desperation. God is going to bring desperate people into our lives and perhaps already has. And we need to see through their desperation to their hearts and try to touch them with the gospel truth. James was challenging this church to be doers of the word of God and not just hearers only. Remember those messages? The word of God is spoken and we need to put shoe leather to our faith and go out and reach people for Christ. The people that he's calling us to reach, though, in this context are people that are actually walking into the assembly. There was a rich person that walked into the assembly in this scenario and a poor person that walked into the assembly. These Christians who had been Jewish in their heritage were gathering in synagogue-like worship just as we are gathered here as an assembly And they had a choice to make. And hypothetically, but probably practically speaking, some people in the congregation were treating preferentially those who were gussied up, who were looking very well-to-do, as the people that they would say, look, sit here in the good seat. Sit here in the place of prominence, because you deserve that. And then for the person that comes in in shabby clothes, the day laborer, the person who's coming off the job, working a hard job and just coming into church, exploring to see if there's some hope here, a person in the congregation says, hey, you stand in the back. Or, oh, if you must sit down, go sit on the dirt floor. Act like my footstool right now. That's what James is saying was going on in the early church. Remember, this is just 10 years removed from the resurrection. James, who grew up as a kid brother of Jesus Christ, is saying, listen, we're only 10 years in and this is the scenario that's happening. One paraphrase of this passage is is where the person said, whose side are you on anyway? Are you on the world side or are you looking through God's eyes into hearts and trying to reach all different kinds of people? Colossians 3.11 says there is no distinction between male or female, slave or free, barbarian or Scythian. No matter what cultural background, no matter what social status, all are one in Jesus Christ. And so James is calling the church to think that way. To think not like the world thinks, but to flip that on its head with the gospel and to see people for who they really are, all created in the image of God. People are people. James 1.27, ministry that's pure and undefiled, not like the world, not like the world thinks, is ministry that goes after the orphan and the widow. On Friday night, I went to Change Point and was able to be a part of a, a dessert fellowship that was for the royal family kids camps. And it was a great time to be with people amongst the body of Christ, and other people that just have a heart for kids that have been abused. These are camps that are designed all over our country to help foster children who've been abused. And they showed a speech uh, given by Sean Parnell that was very powerful. Governor Parnell talked about how the ministry is one that goes out to abuse children, children that have been 
abandoned or slammed up against the walls, children that are in situations where moms are huddled down in basements where the alcoholic father is raging upstairs. And it touched my heart to think, you know, that's pure and undefiled religion. Ministering to the least of these, to the needy, to the desperate. That's what church and gospel is all about. That's where the gospel shines. Now, this passage is not condemning you if you have money, if you are well-to-do. It's just saying that the average common Christian was of a poor status at this point. They were at a disadvantage. A lot of people had to give up their wealth to become Christ's church and to be a follower of Christ. A lot of people would give their money away, and so they weren't as well-to-do as they were before. So he's not condemning those who are wealthy in the church, but he's saying on average, just like how the average world population is poor, the church is made up of people who are poor, who were desperate in this situation. It reminds me of the words of Christ where he said to the Pharisees, he did not come to seek those who were well. The well do not need a physician, but the sick. They're the ones I've come to. that I've come to, that I am calling to become righteous. Matthew 5, which James, he appealed to the Sermon on the Mount quite a bit as he built this letter and epistle. Matthew 5 is where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of God. Jesus is said in 2 Corinthians 8 9 to be the one who, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, what? We might become rich. You see how there is a divine paradox in this passage, a divine paradox where everything changes, where we're willing to get out of our comfort zones and see people who are poor as our brothers and as our sisters in Christ. It's very important for us to think this way. Deuteronomy 7 is a passage that Moses wrote to the children of Israel. The children of Israel had been enslaved under the dominating forces of Pharaoh. Pharaoh told the children of Israel, look, you need to make more bricks with less straw. And sort of was breaking their back as a nation, making sure that they would never be able to rise up against him. God had other plans though, right? The divine paradox is at work even in the Old Testament where these slaves were able to be set free by God's intervention, by plague force coming down on Egypt, where they're ready to cross into the promised land. And Moses writes these words in Deuteronomy 7 to them. He says, look, you're chosen as God's treasured possession. You were, out of all the peoples of the earth, chosen because you were the fewest. You are this small, tiny nation out of all the nations of the world. And God's glory is going to burst through these slaves to be God's centerpiece, the apple of his eye, the ones that he loves the most, that his glory is going to be on display through weakness. Right? What did the Apostle Paul say of himself? When I'm weak, then I am strong. It's a paradox. It's a paradox for our own lives. We are the not many mighty and the not many noble ourselves. 1 Corinthians says as much about the church. Verse 26, your calling, 
amounts to being not many of you as wise according to worldly standards, not many of you according to noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That's you and that's me. We're the ones who are poor in spirit. We might have some money. We might have had running water this morning. We weren't wondering where our next meal was coming from. But at the same time, we are the needy beggars just like anybody else, begging for bread and meat from the Word of God. We know that apart from God, we can do nothing. We need Him. And that same neediness is spread across the church as we reach out to people who are in need physically and spiritually. It's how we need to think. You know, this mindset really came to, to bear in my own life when I went to Grace Church um, down in Southern California a few weeks ago to the Shepherds Conference. I was there and I was eating lunch out on the parking lot grounds. That's where they feed all of the pastors that are coming in for the conference. There were about what did I say, 2,700 people that came, and it was a really mass of people eating, and I sat down at a table, and my former professor from seminary was sitting there. He taught me in three different disciplines of theology and a couple other classes, and was a dear friend, and he and his wife were very precious to me. In the last several years, he's come down with an acute um, disease of Parkinson's, and He has uh, shaken more and more and more and has a trembly voice where he can barely communicate anymore. The seminary, out of love and grace and respect and honor for him, has kept him on and actually miked him so that he could keep teaching even as his disease worsened. But he's come sort of to the end of that and was sitting there just shaking at the table, just taking time to be with some of his former students and disciples. And I knew who he was. And I was able to not just look at his externals, but look into his heart and see him for who he was. And later on, I bent down next to him so that I could talk to him. Because you can't really hear him speak when he's just trying to talk to you without putting his mouth right up to your ear. So I just bent down and he put his mouth and lips right on my ear and began to tell me that he's going to be moving with his wife uh, somewhere else in the country to finish his days in ministry writing and writing, um, you know, Bible lessons from the Word of God. It was a precious time that I had with him, but it's because I could see beyond his frailty into his heart. Then, later on, on Sunday morning, I went into the college ministry and the gymnasium there on the campus, and I saw a man who um, I knew as an elder there for 30 or 40 years. He's a godly man. He's one of the strong leaders of the church But in the last few years, he's also contracted all kinds of physical problems, cancer, heart disease. He had to have open heart surgery. I believe he also has Parkinson's disease as well. Talked to his wife off to the side, and she just said, you know, I I don't know how much longer he will hang on. He's a very, very uh, brilliant man. He was a rocket scientist in... Southern California, you know the old joke, you know, what, what, is, what do you think I am, a rocket scientist? It would take a rocket scientist to figure it out. Well, that's who he is. Anyway, one time a year, actually a year prior, where I was with Steve Hatter at the same conference, we talked to Bill Zimmer, this elder, and we were talking about the missiles that he had developed, and Steve was saying, oh yeah, thank you for that missile. That was something I shot, you know, 20 years ago from an F-15. Anyway, so they were connecting on all kinds of military levels and 
just it showed the amazing intellect of this man and his ability and skill. But at the same time, he had been reduced to frailty, just standing there shaking. And he, he was barely able to stand on Sunday when I talked to him. And out of some kind of respect and honor for me, he, he took his cane and forced himself to his feet to stand up and just talk to me for a second. That's what we have in the church. That's the precious nature of what James is talking about. We have the opportunity to get to know people underneath their skin on levels that you never could otherwise outside of the gospel. The gospel breaks the wall down between Jew and Gentile where we are one man in Christ. Do you know the prejudice that was between Jew and Gentile before the gospel? The gospel breaks that wall down. And James is saying here, listen, you dare not show partiality to one person over against another person, especially according to materialism and wealth. That's out of bounds in the church. And you'll miss out if you do that. Because again, verse 5 says, God, has he not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? It's a rhetorical question with the obvious answer, yes. We've seen it documented all the way back in the Old Testament and throughout time and history. It's those who are needy and desperate that God has plucked out of their desperation into his kingdom. And oftentimes the poor people and needy people experience deeper and more intimate fellowship than those who are trusting in their own wealth to get them through. The Bible doesn't condemn having wealth. As I said last week, Joseph of Arimathea obviously was wealthy, offering his tomb for Christ to be laid in. Nicodemus would have been a, a profound, prolific, known leader in the, the, as, a Pharisee, as a Pharisee in the Sanhedrin. Uh, Paul himself was a person who was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, trained under Gamaliel. You have Moses, Abraham, Job, David, Solomon. You have many people who were wealthy in Scripture. It's not the wealth that is wrong. It's the love of wealth that's the root of all sorts of evil. It's the love and trusting in wealth that can draw us away from God, where Christ said himself, it's harder for a camel to enter in through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The rich young ruler, when tested by Christ, and Christ said, look, sell all that you have and follow me, he went away sad because he was trusting in his wealth. Jesus said, you shall not serve God and money. So money for us is a means to an end. It's a way for us to give to the poor. It's a way for us to support our families. It's a way for us to take care of our needs. But it's a way for us to advance the kingdom and let it go ultimately as we bring in people of all walks of life into our hearts. That's what James is calling for here. So we see through the desperation, a divine paradox. And then also in this passage, we see in verse 5, a divine promise. He says, which he has promised to those who love him. What's the promise? The promise is this, that poor, desperate people are becoming rich in faith and given heir status in the kingdom, equal status. It's just how in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
The Bible says that we are to treat women as co-heirs in the body of Christ. Co-equal heirs with Christ. Heirs of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is this. It's the presence of God. It's the presence of Christ. Anywhere Christ is present, there is his kingdom. In Romans, the kingdom of God is not do's and don'ts, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, right? That's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God also is what we'll enjoy in the millennial kingdom. A thousand years of reigning with Christ on the earth. And the kingdom of God is what we'll experience in Revelation 21 and 22 with the new heavens and the new earth. Anywhere Christ is present and he is king, that is his kingdom. Is he present in your heart? Well, then you are in his kingdom. And any believer, whether poor or wealthy, is part of the kingdom of God. Let me give a few clarifications, though. To be poor doesn't mean that you are automatically going to be in the kingdom. There are many people who die a death of bitterness and self-centeredness who are poor. There are many people who go after false religions, who don't see Christ as the only way for salvation, who die in their poverty. Mother Teresa, she made a statement that sort of placarded her ministry where she said that God's preferential option is for the poor. Now, in a biblical sense, that's true, but not all poor people are preferred or blessed by God ultimately if they reject the gospel. Also, let me say this, that there is a temptation, I think, for believers to look at the wealthy and say, you know what, I'm going to keep myself at an arm's length with someone that I know who is wealthy and I'm not going to get to know them because I would be tempted that that person would look down on me. So it kind of works both ways, though this isn't the point of the passage. It's important that we don't discriminate against the wealthy people either. In Christ, we should go forth and and join ourselves with people no matter where they're coming from in social background or status or education or race or ethnicity. So the poor should gravitate and move towards the wealthy and the wealthy should move towards the poor. That's how it is in the body of Christ. We are called not to discriminate amongst ourselves. We're, not, we're called not to be the judge. Revelation 1 makes it very clear who the judge of the church is. Who's the judge in Revelation 1? It's the Alpha and the Omega. It's Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is all about him. It's about the future, but it's about him. It's revealing who he is in the church. And he is the judge who's robed with a sash across himself, with feet shod with burnished metal, with eyes flaming with fire, as he is in the midst of his seven golden lampstands, which represent the church. Jesus is in our midst. And Jesus' lordship is what creates this kind of gospel, Jesus-based community. Do you want that kind of community? His lordship, which frees us to love each other without pretense and without any kind of mask, just laying all of that down and joining ourselves in the body of Christ. I've talked to so many people who've gone to home groups 
You know, we have one on Monday night. We've got one on Sunday evening. We have PCT, which is the group that's pursuing Christ together. You can find these groups. We have women's Bible studies, men's Bible studies. And so many times I hear people say this. I never in my wildest dreams would have thought I would have been friends with him or with her or with this person. What about children's ministry? I never in my wildest dreams would have thought I would have bonded with that child or this person. Or I never would have thought I would have grown so close to that senior saint. Right? Well, that's what happens when we step out of our comfort zones. We step out of our normal connections with normal relationships with people that are just like us. And we go into other people's worlds. You'll be so blessed if you do that. If you extend a hand... And reach out to people that aren't like you. Nothing wrong with connecting with people where you have the same felt needs. But there's also the opportunity in the gospel to step outside and get to know people. All right, we see through the desperation. And secondly, we see through the decorations in verses 6 through 7. There's three rhetorical questions given here. And then these three rhetorical questions unveil three layers of sin. Look at this in verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Let's stop there. First two rhetorical questions. Aren't the rich the ones that oppress you? The answer is yes. Yes. James was confronting people who were unbelievers in the society and they were oppressing the church. They were the ones who were filled with materialism and stepping on the Christians to gain more wealth. As a matter of fact, the idea here is that they were dragging Christians into court, people who owned land, and they were doing this during an economic famine. In Palestine and in in Jerusalem, there was no food. There wasn't much going on and around in the agrarian society. And so they were pretty desperate in general. And Romans 15, 26 talks about where Paul was commending the church at Rome for their relief offering that was given to the poor. Relief offering that had come from the churches in Macedonia, like the church at Philippi and Colossae. And the churches in Achaia, and they had contributed to the poor in Jerusalem. And in the midst of this poverty and this famine time, the rich people were saying, Aha, here's my opportunity. I can bribe the judge, I can bribe the jury, and I can drag these people into court and falsely accuse them and get everything I can from them to gain more wealth in an opportunistic way. James was exposing them these rich people for doing that. Perhaps he was exposing rich people who were coming in to exploit Christians even in their own assemblies. Where do I get that from? Well, flip over to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. This is a direct rebuke and indict and an indictment on the rich people who had come into the church. It's like James pulls over for a second and he says, look, you who are rich, just raise your hands and let me, let me rebuke you at this point. Again, not wealthy, godly Christians. These are wealthy, ungodly unbelievers. And he says, come now, you rich. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be 
evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which are kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So James was indicting these people and trying to say to the church, don't put these people on a pedestal. Don't let them pull the wool over your eyes. In fact, look at verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? That word blaspheme is the actual word in the original language, blasphemo. It means to slander. Aren't these people taking advantage of you? In essence... Just to paraphrase again, it's as if James is saying, look whose side are you on anyway? Look into people's hearts. And don't look at disgust with people who are coming in and they're desperate for the gospel. Instead, looking to people who are well-to-do, trying to use a worldly method to gain greatness as a church. I mean, so often you, you hear these sort of church growth methods, don't you, where you're supposed to target the young professionals in your church. You're supposed to create methods that are attractional for the young, well-to-do people in your society. Well, guess what? That's not church. It's not the gospel. I got no, no problem with young professionals. I, I, I love all kinds of people to be a part of our assembly. And the poor and the needy need to come into our midst. In fact, James' prescription for church growth would be to look to those who are needy. God has chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith. We're to look for people who are desperate and to bring them into our assembly so that they'll hear the gospel. The people who are poor and desperate, guess what? They often have a softer heart and a greater receptivity to the gospel. And that's what it's all about anyway. We're trying to get people into the kingdom of God with the gospel. Right? That's that's church growth. That's gospel growth. But again, not to say we should discriminate against people who are well-to-do. Because we also need to point out the idolatry of materialism and say, are you willing to lay it down for the sake of following Christ if he asks you to do so? Well, in these verses, James has sort of uncovered the layers of the onion in people's hearts. People were blaspheming the name of Christ in verse 7. Literally, blaspheming the name Christian. Young, the young church was called a group of Christians, little Christ. And that name has transcended time where we call ourselves Christians. It's the same name that Peter gave in 1 Peter 4.16 to the church. Those who suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. Acts 26.28 is where Paul was defending the faith in front of the king, King Agrippa. And King Agrippa said, in a short time, you would persuade me to be a Christian. 
Well, these unbelievers were oppressing that name, literally oppressing the name of Christ as they oppressed the church. They were dragging people into court. They were like Jesus' parable in Matthew 18, where you had the master and the servant, the servant who was forgiven much, and then he went and turned around and was, had a debt that was against him by one of his servants, and he grabbed that person around the throat, and he threw him into prison, and his servants told on him, and that great master overlord came back and sent that person into his own debtor's prison until the debt would be paid off. That's what the sin of materialism does, doesn't it? I mean, here in Matthew 18, verses 27 and 28, You have a man who had been forgiven a life's wage that was against his master and he immediately forgot about his forgiveness and turned on his own servant who only owed him a day's wage. That's what greed does. And we need to see through materialism and see through worldliness and look past greed to hearts. We need to not be like those who were rebuked in Amos 4.1, Israel was rebuked and called cows of Bashan who oppress the poor and the needy. You know, I was thinking this week of uh, some of the Negro spirituals that have been written over the years back in Civil War history. And I pulled a few of the lyrics from um, the internet off and just meditated on them, thinking about how through those who were oppressed, even in our own country, how they clung to the gospel. Even in the oppression, they would hear the gospel and they would create these songs from the word of God and from hymns. One song that used to be sung at the master's college um, quite a bit is, Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel? Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel? Why not every man? He delivered Daniel from the lion's den, Jonah from the belly of the whale, the Hebrew children from the fiery furnace. Why not every man? Did you hear the simplicity of faith in the gospel in those lyrics? The moon, it runs down in a purple stream. The sun forbear to shine and every star disappear. King Jesus shall be mine. Deliver Daniel, deliver Daniel. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Why not every man? I see my foot on a gospel ship. On the ship began to sail. It landed me over on Canaan's shore and I'll never come back no more. Another one. Down by the riverside. Oh, hallelujah to the lamb. Down by the riverside. We'll wait till Jesus comes down by the river. We'll wait till Jesus comes down by the riverside. Oh, we will be pilgrims here below, down by the river. Oh, soon to glory, we will go down by the riverside. Oh, we'll wait till Jesus comes down by the riverside. Oftentimes when they were fleeing their persecution um, on the Underground Railroad, they would sing these songs to stay together at night and they would even give code messages for them to go through watery areas to throw off the scent from their pursuers. One last one, King Jesus is a listening. King Jesus is a listening all day long to hear some sinner say, hear some sinner pray. Some say that John the Baptist has as nothing but a Jew, but the Holy Bible tells us that John was a preacher too. That gospel train is coming, a rumbling through the land, but I hear them wheels a humming, get ready to board that train. 
You know, all of this also reminded me of the story of Philemon. Have you read that recently? Turn over to Philemon. In Philemon, this is the story of Paul's rescue of a slave. Philemon was the slave owner. Paul was imprisoned in Roman imprisonment, probably under house arrest so he could welcome visitors as they would come to him. Onesimus was was fleeing from Philemon as a master. And Onesimus was an unbeliever, but then when he hooked up with Paul somehow in the providence of God, Paul led him to Christ. And so Philemon is a letter written back to Philemon saying, listen, this slave that, that did you wrong, that stole from you, that ran from you, that you might believe deserves death or severe punishment for running from you, he's now a brother in Christ. In verse 8, Paul says, look, I could command you just to receive Onesimus back. I could do that. I'm appealing to you instead for love's sake, verse 9, as an old man. I mean, Paul's really trying to pull the heartstrings here. And Paul had led Philemon to Christ. And so he's saying, listen, just, just receive this other person as a brother. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Verse 14, he's coming not by compulsion, but by your own Accord, And then verse 16, don't see him any longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Receive him both in the flesh and in the Lord. And then in verse 18, he says, look, if he's wronged you at all, just put it on my tab. If there's anything that he owes you, just charge my account. Do you think Paul saw through the veneer of Onesimus' slavery into his heart? Paul saw this man as his brother. And that's what we need to see each other as, brothers and sisters in Christ. Seeing through the veneer, seeing through the externals into the heart. Spout for prayer. At this time, as we bow, just take it as a time for examination personally. We're approaching the Lord's table, and as we approach the Lord's table,